Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. Eight of the top ten Irish companies choose to do business with us. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. Just to remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes, and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. Later in the show, we'll hear the latest on independent news and media and the ODCE's application to have High Court inspectors appointed to the media group. This week, the Minister for Communications, Dennis Nocton, has been drawn into the controversy, and Mark Paul and Simon Carswell will take us through the latest twists and turns in this extraordinary story. We'll also be considering the government's latest economic forecasts published this week. What will they mean for October's budget? Cliff Taylor and Omber Kennedy will explain their import. Now, we're going to begin the week as usual with our roundup of some of the main news stories so far this week. And I'm joined for this segment by Laura Slattery of the Irish Times. Laura, you're very welcome. I think you want to begin with Facebook. That's right. Um, the Facebook contrition tour uh, stopped mm. off in Dublin this week. Um, we had Joel Kaplan, who is Vice President of Global Public Policy for Facebook, um, who anyone who's watching the Mark Zuckerberg appearance in Washington last week will know Joel Kaplan. He was the man sitting behind him making a few interesting faces, shall we say. But uh, he was basically uh, Mark Zuckerberg's eyes and ears and representative on earth at uh, the communications uh, committee hearing this week and he was accompanied by Facebook Ireland's um, Head of Public Policy Neve Sweeney who's a former advisor to um, Eamon Gilmore Former journalist I think a former, former journalist, writer for yeah. this newspaper back in the Absolutely. day Absolutely and RTE and uh, other publications and um, so it was an interesting hearing <laughs> I think it was uh, yeah. We actually have a clip of Joel Kaplan uh, why don't we have a listen to it We do not believe we're a victim here um, we believe we have a broader responsibility to the people who use Facebook uh, we made mistakes. We want to um, make right on the mistakes that we made with respect to this app, um, but also go further uh, and give the people who use Facebook the confidence um, that, that their data is safe. So as you can hear there, uh, you know, we've made mistakes is mm. pretty much a key uh, refrain at the moment at Facebook. Did it sound and convincing to you, Laura? I don't know if convincing is the right word. Either way, it's what it has to do at the moment. It has to put its hands up because it's, it's, been, it's been caught. Timmy Dooley, the Fianna Fáil communications spokesman, put it to Facebook that they, they seem to be doing the fool's pardon, you know, basically saying we didn't know about this and we didn't know about that. Um, but there are obviously questions about, you know, the Cambridge Analytica, about a cer- certain period of inaction between finding out that the data had reached that through this app created by a Cambridge uh, academic 
Alexander Kogan. So there's a question of period of, of inaction. OK, now they're introducing a new feature in Ireland uh, this month, later this month, in advance of the uh, Eighth Amendment referendum. And this could be could be important or significant. Tell well, me about that. it's certainly useful. They fast-tracked this tool that they were going to bring out across the world in June anyway, so it's going to be in Ireland now from April 25th. And essentially it allows you to see the ads that are created by any, you know, any one advertiser. Because before, you know, they were only being served to certain individuals, so it was very hard actually as a journalist even to know what ads certain political campaigns, shall we say, we're running. This, you know, this came up in the last general election here. It was actually kind of... So different ads for different users. Yeah. So as a journalist, we didn't always know. If, if an ad's on radio or it's on television, you know, it's pretty easy to track down. You know, mm. you're, you open the magazine. These are essentially and, propaganda. In this case, it's it's either the... Yes or no. Yeah. yeah. In the repeal. Okay. So they brought it forward. But what's this going to be? Are, are we going to know who's actually paid for these ads, for No. Example? And there's some disappointment about that. I mean, I think... I mean, there is separately a bill, you know, that's been put together by the Fianna Fáil backbencher, James Lawless, that, that's proposing that we will mm. have more transparency on that front. But this does provide some transparency. But, you know, the actual sort of nitty-gritty of who's paid for something, uh, we're going to need a bit stronger legislation than what we have at the moment. And Facebook uh, said it had some amendments that it would like to uh, propose to the uh, the Lawless bill. And so we'll have to wait and see if that comes to light bear or not. Um, I thought I thought it was it was it was sort of you know How did the communications a- committee do by the way because obviously the U.S. Senate committees have a reputation for being quite fearsome uh, and they I do. think they gave Zuckerberg they you know they gave it him was, a bit of a hard time. It was a strange mix uh, last week in Washington of sort of quite what what seemed like kind of ignorant questions about the very nature of the internet but also maybe quite you know the, sometimes the simple questions are the useful ones and, and useful uh, ones for the yeah, public yeah I mean, certainly the uh, I think it was Dick Durbin who asked Mark Zuckerberg who's of course the fifth richest man in the world would you be comfortable in <laughs> telling people where you stayed uh, in a hotel last night and of course you sort of ummed an ad before he said well no <laughs> which sort of really was very revealing so there was a little bit of that but there was some quite blunt statements Breed Smith said it's very difficult for politicians to trust uh, Facebook and it's hard to disagree with that there was a number of you know well informed uh, members of the committee had lots of questions that had to be uh, Facebook we're going to have to do written homework on so uh, in mm-hmm. Gaiman Ryan who's a former communications minister had about 20 questions that he wanted written answers to and Timmy Dooley had about 14 Hildegard Nocton pushed uh, this idea of the, the Facebook legal threats to the Guardian, which was, you know, they, you know, I don't think they were too happy with those. And the Data questions. Protection Commissioner in Ireland, who has responsibility for regulating Facebook uh, effectively across Europe because its DMEA headquarters is based there, it was also in front of the committee. How did she get on? Yeah, she came up first. Um, I mean, I, 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 you know, she was she was kind of explaining some basics to do with online behavioural advertising and opt-outs and all the rest of it. Uh, I think really the essential thing uh, with her office is that, you know, they're taking the lead responsibility later from from the uh, mm. from May on the regulation of, of, of Facebook under the G- GDPR. And it's it's just going to be <laughs> like, you know, it's it's. You know, I don't think, I don't think the resources are there for that. I think that's commonly yeah. agreed, and that's that's a that's a real issue. Yeah, Helen Dixon, of course, the Data Protection Commissioner, under uh, she's a busy woman uh, of late with I and M, 
obviously in her crosshairs. And she as wasn't well. able to answer any questions on on I and M. There was sure. some, and in fact, sure. it was a kind of a half-hearted attempt to even ask those questions. I would say. Okay. All right. Well, I and M will be coming up later in the show. Let's talk about Karen Holmes now. They had the annual report out uh, this week. This is a, a relatively new. What is it? A two, three-year-old uh, Irish house builder. It's gaining. Some momentum. Uh, it bought the lands at Montrose beside RT for 107 million euro there last year, and it's been building homes uh, for first-time buyers and indeed for trader uppers and downers uh, across uh, mostly across uh, Dublin. And the annual report just sort of highlighted to us, if you like, how much money is involved in uh, building. If you get it right, how much money uh, the key executives can earn. Yes, there's money in the property game at the very top. I mean, I think that's what we're, mm. we're learning here from Karen Holmes. Um, so the annual report showed that the, the founders have received a share allocation of about 61.4 million. Three, three co-founders mm-hmm. of the business. Mm-hmm. And, and on top of that, of course, there was quite strong <laughs> salaries. Uh, Chief Executive yeah. Michael Stanley was at 797,000. That was the, the top one. But the uh, another founder, Alan McIntosh, was 525,000. So these are big sums. And of course, it follows um, last September, um, the, the founders uh, who are Michael Stanley, his brother, Kevin Stanley, and, and, and Mr. McIntosh, they got uh, 26 million off the table when they, when they sold a 2.1 percent stake so so there's a kind of a bit of a wheel of fortune here and but they're kind of a critical company one of a small handful of critical companies to the uh we did have michael Stanley on this podcast on this very podcast we went on site with him uh, in hanover key there some weeks back and i have to say we should say first of all that the the product they're building seems to be uh of a very good quality and um, people can argue about the the prices and so forth they're being charged for the houses but they do seem to be building quality houses compared to some of the rubbish that was uh, built before the crash. But nonetheless, if you look at the numbers uh, in terms of what they're going to earn from these founder shares, I mean, look at uh, Alan McIntosh. Uh, his 19.3 million shares uh, worth 30.7 million. Michael Stanley's shares worth 21.5. And Kevin Stanley, uh, his shares worth 9.2. I mean, they're extraordinary sums of money. I mean, I don't think we can say this is anything other than capitalism kind of writ large and, and people will have uh, different opinions on mm. that at a time of, of a housing crisis. Maybe perhaps it, it, it leaves a, a, a bad taste with some. But of course, the housing crisis is why it's happening as well. I mean, obviously, Karen is going to be an important player in the property market uh, in the years to come as we look to try and get demand and supply into equilibrium. Uh, Laura, we're going to finish uh, with shopping. And Pennies and Premark, I don't know if you're a regular customer of theirs, but they had figures out this week which show that sales are tipping along nicely. They are. I mean, they're doing relatively well, um, especially in the UK market where a lot n- number of retailers are, are not doing well because of sort of Brexit-related caution has really crept in. But Pennies, of course, as it's known here, and Premark, as it's known in, in Britain, they sell at such a, a low price point that perhaps they get to shrug off a lot of the, uh, the malaise that affects uh, other retailers. And in the period up to the uh, start of March, um, they they had a three percent sales rise at the UK stores, and you know helped by the fact that they're they're opening uh, new stores as well, um, they're expanding overseas. But I think the interesting thing about Penny's Premark at the minute is the fact that they're not online, and so much of retail seems to be going online, and you can see a clear a clear consumer trend towards online, uh, yes. especially for fashion. Absolutely. And um, people, it's it, we, what once people balked at, it's now second nature to order 
uh, clothes online and send also send them back <laughs> if they're not right. Um, but uh, yeah, John John Basin, the, the the finance director there at Primark, was saying, you know, okay, yeah, online is growing and we're not in online, but so are we. The high street is not remotely dead, he said. So um, obviously, Primark slash pennies isn't in the online game because they just the, the margins are too low and the prices are too low for, for it to be worthwhile. And they, they've experimented with it in the past through to ASOS and other other vehicles, but at the moment they're just you know it's somewhere that you just go in, you pick up stuff, you probably don't even try it on because it's so cheap. Um, you might buy three T-shirts in, in different colors, and you might buy a bunch of stuff for your kids because um, they're going to grow out of it any second anyway. So it it is very it is fast yeah. fashion. Yeah. Okay, well, good for them. Uh, Laura, that's it for uh, this week in terms of our news roundup. Thank you for joining us. We'll take a short break now when we return and we'll have the latest on independent news and media and the ODCE's application to have High Court inspectors appointed to the media group. Back in a few moments. At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always-on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life, September 2014. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. It's been another extraordinary week in relation to independent news and media and the ODCE's application to have High Court inspectors appointed to the media group with the Minister for Communications, Dennis Nochton, drawn into the saga. Mark Paul and Simon Carls will join me in studio. And let's take a little listen to Dennis Nochton speaking in the doll today, giving his explanation of what's happened. I want to state that I'm very happy for any member of Dáil Éireann to come to my department and to view the full file on this merger, as I have acted to the letter of the law throughout this process. Mark Paul, you listened in to Dennis Nocton and his uh, speech in the Dáil. Just first of all, give us the, the background to precisely what happened. What's got him into hot water, if you like, in relation to INM? Well, in early November 2016, um, Independent News and Media had a bid on the table for the Celtic Media Group, which is a regional newspaper group. Um, and that media merger went to the Competition Authority, or now called a CCPC, um, and they um, they passed uh, the, uh, the, the 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 merger. Um, and at this time, on or around the day that, that it was passed, um, Ona Nyokdon, who was a former government press secretary... Mm. And we should say before this that the Minister for Communications of the day, of any government, is Dennis Nocton at the minute, but the Minister also has to pass, also has to approve all media all mergers. All media mergers. Regardless of size or scale or anything like that, all media mergers have to be approved by the Minister of the Day. All media mergers have to go uh, through the Minister of Communications. There, it's, a, it's a special class of merger. Um, so it goes first to the Competition Authority. They decide if there's any sort of an econ- economic overlap. Um, then it goes onto the Minister's desk. He has three options at that point. He can, he can, um, uh, he can clear it, he can refer it, or he can reject it. Um, so what happened was, um, um, when, when nobody was sure what uh, Dennis Nocton was going to do, Ono Nocton, who is a former government press secretary but is now a public relations executive, he was acting on behalf of independent news and media and Leslie Buckley. He called uh, Dennis Nocton um, and they had a conversation. Um, as a result of that conversation, uh, Ono Nocton told Nigel Heenahan, the owner of the firm that he works for, 
um, that um, that the minister was going to refer the deal to the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland to assess it on cross-media ownership rules. Because Dennis O'Brien obviously has uh, owns a number of radio stations, including News Talk and Today FM, which are national radio stations. And at that time, just correct me if I'm wrong here, but Nigel Heenan was representing both INM uh, as a corporate entity and Leslie Buckley. He was representing both INM and Leslie Buckley. Yeah, he had two clients there. Um, so, uh, uh, as a result of the conversation between Owen and Nockdown and Dennis Nockton, and um, this is according to core papers submitted by 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 Ian Drennan, the the, the, the director of corporate enforcement. As a result of that, um, um, Owen and Nockdown developed the opinion that uh, this uh, deal was going to be referred under cross media rules to the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland, which in effect would delay the deal. He relayed this to Nigel Heenan. Nigel Heenan, according to the core papers, then um, um, wrote an email. Um, um, uh, to Leslie Buckley, his client, the chairman of Independent News and Media. Uh, Dear Leslie, um, uh, he goes on to say, following Owen's call with the minister, which happened yesterday afternoon, um, and based on advice from his officials, he will pass it to the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland for review because of the overall ownership of print titles by Dennis O'Brien to be treated as highly confidential as the minister has not yet been officially informed. Mm. Um, um, Leslie Buckley, um, according to the court papers uh, submitted by Ian Drennan, then immediately forwarded that email on to Dennis O'Brien, a shareholder. Um, and uh, 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 Ian Drennan's... Court and this papers, was all sometime before the minister actually let everybody know, let the public know uh, two of months. his plans to two, refer... Two months. Ona knocked on, formed the opinion that it was mm. going to be referred. He, he communicated this through Nigel Heenahan to Leslie Buckley, who communicated it to Dennis O'Brien. This was two months before anybody was told of this. Yeah. And this has now caused a problem for Dennis Nocton. OK, so questions being raised now as to why Dennis Nocton would have uh, told Ona Nocton uh, of INM's PR company uh, two months in advance of making it public, why he would have told them of this decision of his decision to refer. Simon, what has the minister been saying in the all today? Well, what he's been saying is he's talking more about process rather than the substance of what he said. He said he's not saying anything that would be, could be constituted or characterised by anyone as inside information. He's basically saying that he expressed what was his personal view is that it was likely that this uh, proposed takeover would be referred by him to the BAI. But he did say the only piece of new information that he gave on the phone call to Ananachton was that he would lean on the advice of his officials and what they would decide to do. And to be fair to Owen Octon, that's reflected in uh, the email that Nigel Heenan sent on Leslie Buckley, where he says the advice was that it would be based on uh, what his officials told him as to whether he'd refer it or not. But what was taken from that conversation, what Owen Octon took from that conversation is, yes, this minister will refer it on to the BAI. And that was two months, as Mark says, before anyone else knew. And the significance of that is, is that... Uh, Owen and Ockton didn't didn't differentiate between what might be Dennis Ockton's personal view or his view as a minister. He just took it as being the one view, uh, regardless of what the minister now says as, as as he characterizes it now. And he got that information. And when I spoke to Owen and Ockton, he was very clear. He said I I was asked by INM. Um, as their lobbyist, as their uh, as a public affairs, he's simply official. doing his job. He's simply doing his job. Go find out what the minister's mm. position is. We've now been told that it's not going to be blocked on competition grounds. Go find out what the minister's so going to do. The, what's the big deal about this? Uh, in, in essence, I mean, some people might say, "Well, that's just the way Ireland operates. It's a small market. People pick up the phone to each other, and you know, um, they tell things to each other." And was it really market sensitive information? I mean, what what could Dennis O'Brien have done with that information? Well, the reason why it's market sensitive is is independent news and media is a publicly quoted company. If 
the minister was going to refer a proposed takeover which would have increased INM's number of regional titles from 13 to 20, making it a far larger group. It's already the existing, uh, the largest media group in the country, making it an even larger group. So any delay in that takeover could have had a negative effect on the share price. So you could have said, well, if I'm a shareholder, any shareholder, uh, if that's going to happen, then obviously this isn't going to look well for the group. The share prices may fall. So I might sell mm. some shares and, and avoid losses on that. Um, the issue and the, the, the core point in all of this, regardless of what Dennis Nocton said to Owen Nocton on that call and how as it was relayed, is that Ian Drennan, the director of corporate enforcement himself, used this as some information that may possibly fall within the definition of insider information. And that on that basis, as he says in the court papers, as he alleges that Leslie Buckley, as chairman of Independent News and Media, may have breached market abuse regulations by sharing that information with the major shareholder and not with all the shareholders as he should have done or not declared it to the market as he should have yeah, done. Yeah, this was just w- one instance of him doing that. You, you've actually, uh, I think, counted up about nine occasions when Leslie Buckley shared information with Dennis O'Brien. Yeah. It's, there's nine communications that uh, Ian Drennan, as the director of corporate enforcement, says he's raises significant concerns that in those communications, there was information shared by the then chairman of independent news and media with the company's biggest shareholder, main major shareholder, Dennis O'Brien, uh, and that that information was shared with him alone and not shared with other shareholders, which, as Drennan says, could constitute um, inside information and could therefore be in breach of stock market rules. Yeah. Mark, is Dennis Knoxon on a sticky wicket? Is, there, is the opposition banging for blood? Uh, they are banging for blood. They don't seem to accept what the minister is saying. What the minister's defence is basically, look, I didn't tell Owen and Yachton that it was definitely going to go there. I told him that it was likely going to go there, right? But you've got to look at what uh, Owen and Yachton and, and Heenan and Pior communicated to their client, Leslie Buckley. They said it was definitely going to go there. Now, either Owen and Yachton misunderstood what Dennis Nocton said um, um, or, or, or there's something else to it. Um, and there's another issue here as well, which is that four weeks after this uh, a telephone conversation, um, uh, uh, Dennis Nocton was asked in the doll, was he going to refer this? He was asked on the floor of the doll uh, by other TDs. And he said at that time, uh, um, I'm not going to tell you. It will be inappropriate for me to tell you. Yet it appears four weeks earlier, he had at the very least told Owen and Yachton that it was likely that it was going to go. Owen and Yachton formed the opinion that it was definitely going to go. And that's what was communicated to Leslie Buckley. And if Owen and Yachton was told that it was only likely, you know, that it wasn't definite that it was going to go there. Um, you know, he and your PR took a bit of a risk telling, you know, probably their best client that it was definitely going to go there. You know, Dennis Nocton tried to create when he was talking to Dahl the sort of vista that, look, everybody knew it was going to go to this sort of a thing. But of course, that's not true at all because on the 12th of January 2017, um, uh, 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 Leslie Buckley sent another text message to Dennis O'Brien. He says, Dennis, it was cleared by the competition authority and normally on that basis, the minister would just sign. This is the first time that having been approved by the competition authority, it's been referred to the BAI. Now, Dennis Nocton is saying, everybody knows it was going to go to a second one. Leslie Buckley, the chairman of Independent News mm. Media, he didn't seem to know that. And also the, the fact that the minister is saying today that there was nothing out there in the public domain, uh, there was nothing new in what he said that wasn't already out in the public domain, what he said to Owen Nocton. He did an interview with our colleague Laura Slattery, a substantial interview for the business section. And Laura, in that interview, which took place on the 23rd of November, so 12 days after he had this conversation with Owen Nocton, Laura asked him about, well, what's the situation with the INM's takeover of Celtic Media Group? And he said, definitively, I hadn't looked at it. He said, uh, it's with my officials and it hasn't come to my desk yet. So that directly contradicts what he had said to Owen Nocton in this conversation. Th- th- there is one more, one other 
other factor and one other piece of new information that was revealed by Dennis Nocton today in the Dáil. He said that on May the 3rd, 2017, this was whilst this um, BAI review was ongoing, he says that he met Leslie Buckley at a data summit in Dublin. Um, he says he can't remember what they spoke about. Um, um, he didn't say this in the original statement. This was um, um, this came a- after about 10 or 15 questions from opposition politicians. He says he can't remember what they were spoken about. But what we do know is that four weeks later, INM, for reasons that we do not know, pulled the deal. Um, so, um, and we don't know what prompted INM to do that. Mark, Dennis Nocton might argue that, look, I wasn't doing Dennis O'Brien a favour here. In fact, if you look at it, Dennis O'Brien's commentary about Dennis uh, Nocton as Minister for Commun- Communications, uh, it's not particularly favourable. No, it's not. But you've got to remember that commentary from Dennis O'Brien comes after the deal was pulled. Um, and, you know, did INM pull the deal because they thought it was going to be knocked back on cross-media rules? Did, it, did they decide to jump before they were pushed? Mm. You know, that's, that's one thing to consider. But no, certainly Dennis O'Brien and Dennis Nocton aren't close. Dennis O'Brien made comments on the 25th of January to our colleague Joe Brennan in Davos in Switzerland. Of this year. Of this year. And he said to him, um, and we, uh, he was asked about um, 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 Dennis Nocton, and he says he, uh, he says the minister just doesn't get it. He doesn't get um, um, the media, Irish media industry, and under his watch, you know, we'll be left with no other Irish-owned media except for RTE. Um, he seemed to have a little bit of a bee in his bonnet about Dennis Nocton. Why Dennis O'Brien has a bee in, a bon- in his bonnet about Dennis Nocton? Who knows? But he certainly does. Yeah, Simon, a lot of twists and turns in this. Uh, sorry, we don't have time to go into it all, but there was a, a very significant day in court. Uh, on Monday of this week, the ODCE was uh, making an application to the High Court to uh, Peter Kelly to have uh, inspectors appointed. They would have wide-ranging powers. They'd be there for a long time. Um, it will be a very significant event for the company and the company uh, opposed, challenged that application. What happened? Just remind us. Well, what happened was uh, independent news and media came in. The council stood up and said, we wish to challenge the application to appoint inspectors. Uh, we wish to uh, have a judicial review case heard as to the merits and as to whether the uh, Director of Corporate Enforcement should be entitled to appoint inspectors. Um, the main concerns raised by the company was that the risks to the company, to its, to its um, employees, to its management, to its shareholders, to its share price had not been taken into consideration. This could go on for years. Yeah, well, the court was told this would be very damaging to the company and it could go on for a long, long time and judging by the number of parties who sought access to the papers in this case, it would suggest and the number of lawyers involved, it would suggest it will go on for a considerable number of time because of the scale of the the cast of characters behind all of this. So what happened was the judge um, put it back to May 9th. Uh, the, both sides, both the Director of Corporate Enforcement and INM initially wanted both the judicial review hearing and the application to appoint inspectors heard in the same day. Uh, Mr. Justice Peter Kelly, the President of the High Court, said, no, um, I want you, I want to hear, I want the judicial review application heard. And he said, um, if that's successful, it would deliver a knockout blow, as he said, to the Director of Corporate Enforcement. If it's successful, then it would go on to another hearing, likely to be in the next legal term, to hear uh, the grounds in which uh, the Director of Corporate Enforcement wants to put in High Court inspectors. So the next date is actually next week. Week, there's a there was a matter, a smaller matter of uh, privileged information that was handed over by INM to the Director of Corporate Enforcement. There was some contested uh, con- contested information put in there. INM said it was privileged; it shouldn't have been put in there. We don't know exactly what that is. So there's a hearing next Tuesday to discuss that. But the the next big fixture in this whole uh, saga is going to be May 9th when we're going to hear the judicial review. Okay. And uh, finally, Mark. In the meantime, this is hugely distracting for INM, isn't it? It has to be. As a company, uh, you know, in a very difficult market with advertising in decline, with print circulation in decline, etc. 
it's got to be very distracting. For you, the company. You, you know, you you would have to think that that I and M shareholders would want the attention of the company's management to be on negotiating the digital media landscape, to be on negotiating and um, 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 and managing the finances of the company. But it, look, it's from looking from the outside, it seems like all of management's attention um, um, and, and focus has been drawn onto these um, and these events and and, and and these core proceedings and and every single day, independent news and media is the news itself. It's in the headlines every day for all of the wrong reasons, even in its own newspapers. And that's got to be terribly distracting for management and it's got to be very irritating, I would imagine, for other shareholders. All right, well, there's a long road to travel in this story. Uh, Simon and Mark, no doubt we'll have you back at a later date uh, to discuss the various uh, twists and turns that might come down the road. Thank you for joining us. Now, this week, the Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, issued updated forecasts on the Irish economy. This is all part of uh, the Stability Programme update, which is to be submitted to the European Commission uh, later this month, all part of the sort of revised budgetary process that we now have in Ireland and that's been evolving over the past number of years. Joining me in studio to consider these uh, forecasts, which were very much on the positive side, it must be said, are Owen Burke Kennedy and Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times. Gentlemen, you're, you're both very welcome. Owen, you might just take us through those revised forecasts because obviously uh, economic growth has been revised upwards and he's also talking of record employment levels. Yeah, uh, interesting. We have another series of upgrades in front of us. Um, this time, he is projecting five point six percent growth in GDP terms this year, and four percent next year. What was it? What was it previously? Um, previously, it was three and a half percent and three point two percent in two thousand nine. It's a it's a pretty big upgrade, nearly two percent. It's probably one of the What's biggest ones we've had. Well, the headline uh, things that. Uh, they seem to be pointing out are another positive uh, year for exports and again domestic demand which seems to be driving uh, growth in the economy Um, interestingly enough the forecast is 1% higher than the central bank's forecast the the, uh, he also then mentioned that the strong growth would see employment rising to a pre-crash a pre-crash peak of 2.24 million uh, sometime in the first half of this year which is a pretty big milestone you know so we'll have recovered all the jobs Mm. lost psychologically that's a big thing it's a big thing. Now, I, I, I should say that the, the workforce is bigger this time round. So, um, so what know, kind of unemployment rate will we be talking about? Well, we, we'll be talking about an unemployment rate later this year of below 6% and, uh, you know, 5.5% by the middle of next year, which is verging on full employment in some people's eyes. But we did get down to lower rates mm. uh, at the height of the boom. Mm. And significantly, these upgrades... Uh, Front and centre in its report, the department actually cautioned that a substantial part of the upgrade would be coming from distortions from the multinational sector. Now, I can't remember um, those sort of caveats being put front and centre to the government's uh, forecasts, and I can't help thinking maybe, uh, given uh, he's perhaps minded of the need for managing expectations ahead of the budget. So he is putting a large portion of the growth down to essentially a distorted mm. distortions from the multinational sector. So they've earmarked 2.6 billion in spending for budget 2019, which will be announced in October of this year. And of this, 1.1 billion uh, taken up by carryover costs associated with previously announced uh, budget measures and the balance allocated for capital spending purposes. Yeah. So there's no wriggle room. He seems to be suggesting there's no wriggle room. Yeah, the suggestion is that everything is already tied down and there is no kind of, I suppose, extra fiscal space uh, for us to speculate about. 
without then uh, so, so the key plank of, of, of Fine Gael's programme for government is tax cuts so where would they come from well they won't come unless uh, revenue is raised elsewhere so yeah, that means okay. uh, you know raising tax in different parts of the economy Cliff what's your assessment of this is, uh, will he raise taxes I suppose he surprised us last year with the commercial uh, the stamp duty increase sure. on commercial property up to 6% now whether the expected revenue jump in revenue that he anticipated actually comes true or not uh, we'll have to wait and see yeah. but nonetheless it was a bit of a rabbit out of the hat and it gave him some headroom to do other things in the budget last year it was yeah I mean there's no doubt that uh, as Owen said uh, he's trying to pull back expectations a fair bit from this kind of thinking that there'll be some kind of bonanza in October and, and the main way he's done that is say look we've all this money is already accounted for a lot of this money is already accounted for uh, via, uh, as you said, new capital spending, public sector pay, carryover costs, the stuff done last mm. year, uh, 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 and so on. We have to see closer to the budget how it all balances out. Uh, what happens now is they go to the European Commission, the European, and they have some discussions with them about the state of the economy, you like, and the appropriate targets for next year. And there's kind of a fairly wonky debate about what adjustments should be made for the growth rate of the Irish economy in terms of the public finance targets. And as Owen said, those the problem is the GDP figures are so messed up by the activities of multinationals here. That's not a straightforward exercise. And then come the summer, we'll have the summer economic statement, which is going to be more a political, if you like, a political statement of intent for the budget. When I think that, you know, the minister will be expected to nail his colours a bit uh, to, to the mast a bit more, a bit more significantly, you know, th- there may be some scope emerges for tax cuts at the at at, yeah, at the end of the day. But I think it's clear, as Owen said, that they don't want to head that down that direction in net terms. Certainly in terms yeah. of big tax giveaways, he has identified the entry point to the higher income tax rate as his key one of the key things he wants to look at. But let's be uh, realistic here. This is the third of three budgets that Fianna Fáil agreed to support yeah. as part of his confidence and supply agreement. This is the Fianna, Fianna Gael led minority government. They need yeah. the support of Fianna, sure. F- uh, Fianna Fáil to get this through. So the chances are we're going to have an election uh, maybe next year. Yeah. And, you know, Fianna Fáil hasn't done anything to sort of dampen those ex- expectations sure. of an election. They've, they haven't committed to signing up to a, a new agreement as yet, at least. So on that basis, if this is going to be the last budget before you go into an election, there's a, well, uh, a well-worn Indeed. traditional path, if you like, of uh, parties in government and give away budgets before the next election. Charlie McCreevy was something of a master of it. Yeah. Uh, so is it realistic to expect that there's going to be little by way of tax, tax no, cuts the, in the look, next budget? Look, they're going to find, they'll surely find some room for manoeuvre to cut the USC and to widen the tax band. I think what Pascal Donoghue is trying to do is to, is to pull back the expectation that somehow there's this massive wad of cash that, you know, yeah. we can half abolish the USC or whatever. But there's an, an interesting thing happening as well, I think, uh, and, and it may reflect kind of a reading of the electorate, both by Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. There's no doubt that Fine Gael have been pushing up, pushing forward the prudence line. And Fianna Fáil also, uh, Michael McGrath issued a statement after the figures, very cautious, um, saying he welcomed the money being put into the rainy day fund next year. Well, of course he would. He doesn't want, he doesn't want tax cuts. Why would he want tax cuts ahead of the next election? Well, that's, that's true, I suppose. But it's, it is interesting to see them both playing the prudence card. I think yeah. Fianna Fáil could, could look for tax cuts and claim credit for them on, on, you know, on the other hand either in the way that this strange political uh, political construct we have at the moment but I think there is a feeling in Leinster House that the public are cautious and maybe a little more difficult to buy favours uh, than it would have been in the past 
everyone was so badly stung by the crash. Uh, it is still very much in people's memories. And I think there is also a feeling, OK, there'll be, a, there'll be some money given away, but that if if, there, if there's any, any, any kind of wider view that uh, the government's losing the run of itself and having the kind of pre-election budgets that Charlie McCreevy is yeah. famous for, that, that, that they could actually, be, could actually be a loser politically. Oh, and nonetheless, people might be out there asking, well, hold on, economic growth is going to be, what, 5.6%? They were predicting 35 and they're talking about record uh, employment levels. So that's more people at work. That's more tax coming into the coffers. I mean, come on, why aren't we getting a, well, a tax cut? You're right. I mean, it's a very difficult one to manage. The expectations are roaring along. But if you remember the last general election, I mean, Fine Gael ran on a plank of keep the recovery going and, and tax cuts for the yeah, squeeze. It didn't go very well. It didn't go very well. And the emphasis now seems to be much more on curing some of these bottlenecks in housing, in health and education. So that's definitely kind of changed the dial a little bit. But like every budget, you know, there's a, loads of bells and whistles announced. But when it comes down to it, it's, you know, five, ten euros a week for the most of us. Yeah, sure. Uh, Cliff, was the whole impact of Brexit, was that completely exaggerated? No, I don't think so. Uh, I think the impact of the run-up to Brexit was probably exaggerated. I think everybody thought, myself included, that after the vote there'd be a hit to confidence in the UK economy, that growth would slow there. Well, that has happened. It has happened. It didn't happen initially, but 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 still, they've had a healthy enough run there. Uh, But signs are starting to appear. But I think, you know, what we have to remember is Brexit hasn't happened yet. Uh, we haven't seen whatever the hit from Brexit is going to be. And the difficulty for the government is trying to plan for this because you're, you're really planning for the unknown. So if you read the department's documents, say, they're saying, OK, we're assuming that the transition agreement, this kind of standstill that would apply from next March after the UK leaves the EU until the following December 2020 uh, w- will happen. And that after that, will be there will be a trade deal between the UK and the EU. Now, that kind of scenario has some... It's a lot of dangers for Ireland, but it's not catastrophic. On the other hand, we still could be looking at the talks breaking down and, and the UK crashing out in March next year and a much bigger hit on growth and tax revenues next year. So we will have a better idea where how that stands in September or October, although it mightn't be completely bottomed out. Mm. But I, I think we can expect uh, the government and Minister Donoghue to play it very cautiously up to then and leave themselves room for manoeuvre because if it does look around budget time as if hard Brexit is a real risk um, then it's going to be a very different budget to, to to one which would be presented if that was not the case Yeah, Owen are we any closer to solving the housing crisis than we were uh, let's say a couple of years ago it doesn't seem that way it certainly doesn't seem that way we're have still you, have you any uh, confidence that you know what's been proposed by the government uh, in various plans is actually going to work well uh, to be truthful no um, we're still arguing about how many houses we're building which is an incredible uh state of affairs given where we've been that we don't even have a handle on the very metric that seems to be at the Mm. root of all these problems so How many did we build last year? Well the department are coy about saying that they're using a figure of um, 18,000 based on ESB electricity connections uh, which many experts in the field say you know are grossly overestimate the amount of house being built in some cases by up to 50 or 100% so um, Good body have done some work on this Good good body have, have changed to the BEO or the energy rating systems to get a better picture but all the other various metrics do have their own shortcomings so it's just amazing to think that 10 years on that somebody in officialdom hasn't gone out and actually you know tried to clamp down on on where we are going with housing 
So at the moment, the government seems to be tinkering around with, you know, um, demand side measures. But on the supply, they're still waiting for the private sector to um, build. And at the moment, we're not even sure where that's going. Yeah. Cliff, finally, we, we talked about tax cuts. But what about tax rises? I mean, if he's going to implement some tax cuts, he might have to increase some taxes somewhere along the way at some point yes. in the economy. And people are beginning to worry about the local property tax bills, which are due for review in 2019. Yeah, they're due for review in 2019, although any increase wouldn't come until 2020. Uh, the minister has gone out of his way to say that any rise will be moderate and uh, affordable. Uh, nonetheless, you know there is a possibility that it could happen. Some new basis has to be found for this tax, otherwise it'll just wither and die. And the idea of broadening the tax base will, you know, will, will again be abandoned. So they're going to have to find some way around this and some way to structure this tax in future. And, and it's worth remembering that anyone who bought a new house since 2013 is not paying the tax. And, and that's, that's over 40,000 now, isn't it? It is, yeah, 48, well, 48,000. How is that equitable? It's not equitable at all. Um, and it's, it's, it's ridiculous, really. There's, there's a number of anomalies in the tax. Anyone who bought a house at all in 2013 doesn't pay. And anyone who bought a new house since 2013 doesn't pay. So I think those exempt those exemptions are due to run out next year. Uh, and um, the uh, Oireachtas Committee that looked at the issue, including politicians from all parties, uh, recommended that exemption should go. So I, I think it probably will. So there is a group of people who haven't paid at all who are going to be brought into the net. We might see a bit of a fuss about that. Would that you generate know, much money? Uh, no, I, th- I think uh, there was talk maybe 20, 30 million. It's, okay. not, it's not a huge amount of money in the greater scheme of things. There are other areas the Minister could look for uh, for taxes next year. Uh, there was talk, for example, uh, before the last budget that uh, the tax on diesel might be increased to bring it into line with petrol. Maybe not in one step, but in a few steps. That would seem to make sense on environmental grounds. Again, there might be a Brexit red light on that one because it obviously would hit hauliers, uh, particularly and they are in the front line of the of the Brexit uh, of the Brexit hit, but that is and a number of state companies as well, because I think Dublin bus and right. bus Air and so forth yeah. would 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 have a large part of their fleet would be yeah. diesel powered, and of course the sugar tax. Um, yes, the sugar tax. Year. Now that's been deferred until yeah. May, until yeah. the beginning of yeah. May, and yeah. again it's one of these taxes where the government said, well, it's going to generate X, but actually the the real figure might be a lot less because. I did an interview with Brific just last week and they have moved, I think their portfolio was 50-50 sugar, yeah. no sugar or low sugar. Yeah. And now it's uh, 75% is out, outside this sugar tax net. So, the, you know, the suppliers have responded. Yeah, well, I think, I remember the, part, the Department of Finance briefing when the tax was being, being introduced uh, when they solemnly told us this wasn't a revenue raising measure at all. It was designed to uh, cut the use of sugar. So on one hand, I yeah. guess they've been successful. But on the other hand, they're probably quietly tearing their hair out and saying, well, we'd hope for 50, 60, 70 million from that next year. Probably going to be a good deal less now. Yeah, yeah, okay. All right. Okay, gentlemen, we'll leave it there. We'll see how this uh, plays out. Uh, there's going to be lots more twists and turns, I suspect, before the budget is actually delivered in October. Umber Kennedy and Cliff Taylor, thank you for joining us. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Laura Slattery, Owen Burke Kennedy, Cliff Taylor, Mark Paul and Simon Carswell. Jennifer Ryan produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com and you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.